Please keep your Bibles open to Luke chapter 23 and get out the sermon outline and the announcement sheet. And while you're doing that, just a quick reminder that uh, as we get ready to go into the, uh, the camp season, uh, Camp Zenith and Impact and Cornerstone up at the OCU campus, there's always a great need for scholarships. And one of the ways that money for scholarships to be able to send these kiddos to camp and to change their lives through an intensive week of fellowship and Bible study and worship and, and rubbing shoulders with, with other Christians is, uh, is to make sure that they have the money through these scholarships to go. And one of the ways that it's raised is uh, a golf scramble. And on April 6th, there's going to be a golf scramble with uh, uh, anybody from our church family that would like to play. It'll be at Olympia Hills. Uh, you can bring guests. There's information inside the announcement sheet. All of the money goes to helping kids go to camp. And if you need some more information, uh, you can see Lynn Harlow or talk to Cody Spear, and they'll make sure that you get signed up for the information that you need. Let's pray. Father, it's with, trier, with, with fear and trembling that we approach this ancient text and this old event that we think about every day. It's, it's, it's so ironic, Father, that, 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 that creation would try to destroy its Creator, but... But we also are forced to face ourselves and the kind of hearts and minds and souls we have because of sin entering into the world. Our prayer, Father, is as we, as we, we go into this text this morning, that we will go into it not just with our minds, but with every part of our being. That truly, Father, you'll give us eyes that see, ears that hear, so that we can turn toward you. And we pray, Father, that, that uh, in all that we do, in our coming and our going, our rising and our laying down, that everything, Father, in our life revolve around You as our Son, as our core, as our center. And that we will be moved and changed, Father, by Your Word and by Your presence. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When you read the Gospels, there are lots of miracles that take place during the death of Jesus. There's the earthquake and the rocks splitting as uh, the creation kills its creator. There's the, uh, the tombs that break open and the holy people of God that rise from the dead and walk around into Jerusalem and show themselves to many people. And there's also the darkness. And the darkness is not something that we talk about very much, but the significant thing for us this morning is, is to note that all four of the Gospels talk about the major events in and around the cross of Jesus as happening in the dark. You have the betrayal of Jesus by Judas in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's in the dark at night. You have the denial of Jesus by Peter, not once, but three times. And it happens in the dark at night. And then you have Jesus being led off to Caiaphas and to Annas. And, and you have that trial that convicts Him to death. 
and he's going to be taken to the Romans so that he can be executed. And all of that happens in the dark at night. And then you have Jesus breathing his last in this text that, that Jordan just read for us. Jesus is breathing his last, his last time. And it's in the dark, but it's in the middle of the afternoon. We read in verse 44 and 45, it's, it, was, it was about noon. And darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun had stopped shining. Now, people have struggled with the meaning of this or the, the, the event of this, this, this sky turning black, the whole land getting into darkness in the middle of the afternoon. Some have tried to give us some natural causes. Some have said that it was an eclipse, meaning that at some point during the day there was the moon eclipsing the sun and that the land was dark. The problem with that, though, is that every eclipse that has ever been known has only lasted for a short period of time, not for hours, usually minutes. And on top of that, this is being done during the Passover, so it's the time of the full moon. Well, other people have said that it's a Scirocco. You know, it's one of those gigantic sandstorms that has come and engulfed the land, and that's why it was dark. And, you know, I, maybe that's a good guess, but, you know, having been to Jerusalem a couple of times, you know, Scirocco's are not an everyday occurrence there. And on top of that, it's Passover, which means it's the wet season. So it's not a Scirocco. You know what it is? It's a supernatural event. And because it's a supernatural event, it signifies something. Now, to put it in context, on the day that Jesus was born, if you go from chapter 23 that Jordan just read for us all the way back to chapter 2, one of the things that happens in the middle of the night as those shepherds are taking care of their flocks, they're tending their flocks by night, the glory of the Lord shines all around these shepherds. On the day that Jesus is born, the night becomes like light. But on the day that Jesus dies, darkness covers the entire land. The reason is the light of the world is leaving. In fact, he says in the preceding chapter, he says, this is now your hour and the hour of the power of darkness. Darkness is now covering the most heinous, the most evil event in the history of the world. And inside of this darkness in the city of Jerusalem was a mighty act of judgment by God. And it involves a cry of separation. A cry of separation. In reality, it's a, it's a shriek of horror. You know, friends, I, I don't know how many times you go through the, the, the Scripture that pertain to the death of Jesus and the cross. I don't know how many times during the year or the week or the uh, the month you go through that, but way too many times these words, are, they, they remain two-dimensional and, and as words on the pages of our Bible, and they're two-dimensional in the scenes of our own imagination. You know, these, these, these words were a, a, a shriek. Several years ago, Ellen and I uh, and the kids, we took a vacation nearly two decades ago to South Dakota to Mount Rushmore. And while we were there, we heard that there was a passion play in a town nearby. So we loaded everybody up. We went to the passion play. It was, it was the most hokey play I had ever seen in my life for three big reasons. One was every time Jesus went walking through the set, which was Jerusalem, they played hockey music. Dun, 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 dun. Well, you get the idea. That's just hokey music. And then the guy that was playing Jesus was just a real ham. I think he was a frustrated Shakespearean actor. I mean, this guy was all pork. 
And he would try, he was doing Jesus as Macbeth. Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani. And at one point in the middle of the play, when they are nailing Jesus, this actor, to the cross, the guy in front of me decides, it was a, hey, this would be a good time for a cat nap. And so the guy right there in the middle of crucifying Jesus gets up and he takes a nap. Imagine, imagine a mother shrieking for a child, a lost child that she will never see again. She hopes to see, but doesn't know if she will. She may never see Him again. The anguish and the fear shrieking for that lost child. And because this is a judgment scene, multiply it a hundred thousand fold. And what you have is a shriek of horror that if you would have been there on that day and would have heard it, your skin would have crawled. Eloi! Eloi! Lama sabachthani! It is a, a shriek of horror. Now through the ages, people have struggled with Jesus being forsaken by God. In Psalm 37 and verse 25, the psalmist says, I have yet to see the righteous forsaken or their children beg for bread. You know, there are lots of explanations that you read from time to time as to what it is that, you know, in this struggle with whether or not Jesus is being forsaken as the righteous being forsaken by God. And, and they say things like, you know, he's quoting verse 1, but he means the entire Psalm 22. Because Psalm 22 ends on a very positive note. The problem that I have, and I think a lot of uh, other scholars not that I'm, I'm only a scholar in what Jesus has done in my life, but the, the, the true theologians, they, they say, you know, if that was the case, then why not say the last verse rather than the first verse? You know what I think, church? I think Christ said what He meant, and He meant what He said. The Trinity was being dismantled. The Godhead was being disjointed. That word in, in Mark chapter 15 and verse 34 is the exact same word that Paul uses in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10 to describe his relationship with Demas and what happened to Demas. He says in that verse, you know what? I'm all alone. Demas has left me, has deserted me, has forsaken me, and he's gone on to Thessalonica. And what Paul is saying in that verse when it comes to he and Demas is that geographically they're not in the same place that relationally they're not on the same page. It's spiritually speaking, they're in different places. Now it's true that God does not forsake the righteous. And that is precisely the point. God has forsaken the unrighteous. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God made Him who had no sin to be, say it church, sin for us so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness, or, or excuse me, I, I jumped a verse there, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24, He Himself bore what? Our sins. Where? In His body on the cross 
so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. It's by His wounds that we've been healed. You go to that Psalm 22 that, that Jesus is quoting, that, that first verse, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You go two more verses. Verse 3, that psalm recognizes that God is a holy God. He is a holy God who has to judge sin even when it's on His Son. When you think about all of the prayers of Jesus, and there, there, there are lots of prayers that you read in the Gospels that have the, the, the words of Jesus as He's praying to God the Father. And in every one of those prayers, He refers to God as the Father except one. It's this one in Luke 23. He's talking to God. But He says, My God, My God. You see, in this moment, Jesus does not see Himself as the only begotten Son of God the Father, but sees Himself as, as man before the holy judge of the universe. And one of the things that we need to meditate, not just today, but every day of our life, every time it even comes into our consciousness, we need to do business with this, this, this thought. And it's this, the cross has to condemn before it can save. The cross has to condemn before it can save. And not only was it a cry of separation, but it was an experience of substitution. The sin that went on Christ that we read about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that sin on Christ belonged to us. We are the ones who are lost. And it's Christ who becomes the curse for us by standing in our place and taking the wrath of God upon Himself. Listen to the words of these verses from the hand of Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for, say it, church, all, and therefore all died. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and verse 3. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a what? A curse. A curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And just to refresh our memory a little bit, what happens when you become cursed? What happens specifically when Jesus describes that cursing? Do you remember what He says in Matthew chapter 25? In that parable about judgment, He says, Then He will say to those on His left, Depart from Me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. You know what the gospel in a nutshell is? We became lost when we as men, as human beings, substituted ourselves for God in the garden and sin entered into the world. But salvation comes when God substitutes Himself for us on the cross. And by the time that Christ has left the Garden of Gethsemane, He knows all about the cup that He's going to drink. We talked about that last week. He is fully aware of the hell that lies before Him. And His cry in the darkness was acknowledgement of what the angels would have stopped and that is the Son without the Father. In Luke chapter 23 and verse 35, Jesus is hanging up there in the cross. And they're mocking Him and they're taunting Him. There are those that are beating their breasts and tearing their clothing because they, they know what's happening. They recognize it. But there are other foolish human beings who were taunting Him up on the cross. 
And they say he could save others. Let him save himself. Let him save himself. What he was getting for us was the cosmic judgment we deserve. And so we should shudder at the awfulness of our sin. Christ was crushed to keep every single syllable of gossip that you speak or write from sending you to hell. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus Himself says, At judgment we will be all held accountable for every word we speak. And before you write or before you say something that diminishes somebody's stature in another person's eyes, or especially diminishes that person in the eyes of God in whose image he is made or she is made, then you need to think about the cross of Jesus. Christ suffered according to Scripture in order to keep our greed and to keep our, our idolatry from, from, uh, from propelling us headlong into eternal destruction without hope of it ever being changed. I've told you before that the most, the most horrifying aspect of, of hell to me is that hell is everything worse than we actually have written for us to describe it in the Bible. But the worst part of that is that hell is that place of complete and eternal separation from God. Hell is that place where there is no hope of God ever coming to get you. And God will ever come to rescue you. Christ's blood was spilled to keep our pride from driving us into the darkness forever. John writes in chapter 3, This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. But, Colossians 1 verse 13, He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. Therefore, we must grasp the awesomeness of God's love. It's kind of a a, a lame illustration. But think of a father who has a lot of kiddos. A father has a lot of of children. And finds out that that one of the children is infected with a a terrible, terrible fever, a terrible disease, has, has entered into this oldest son's body. And it's contagious, and it's dangerous, and it's deadly. And so the father locks this son into a room to keep him quarantined and isolated and and to keep the other children away. And he can hear the son inside of that room crying out for his father, 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 where are you? Where are you? Come to me, Father. Where are you, my father? My father, my father. But he can't do it. Because if he opens that door and he goes in, if he opens that door, he exposes all of the other children to the disease. To the, and they too will get sick and they too will die. And it's a terrible ordeal. It's, it's, it's a terrible, terrible ordeal for the father to hear the son crying in a place where he cannot go to him. But that oldest son is saying, my, my father, my father, where are you? My father, my father, come to me 
so that all of the other children don't have to. I know it's a lame example, but it kind of puts some weight behind some of the most cliched, what has become some of the most cliched, but in reality is some of the most important, powerful words that human beings have ever heard. John chapter 3, verse 16, God so loves the world that He gives His only, His only begotten Son. And then there's Paul in Romans 8, after saying there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ, he says, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for all of us, how will He not also along with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I think the saddest movies we see are those movies in which there could be a great love, a great relationship, a tremendous joy, a lot of happiness. That's all for naught. And it's, it's because of foolishness, a foolish decision, a foolish perspective, a, 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 a foolish idea that gets into somebody's mind, foolish pride, foolish arrogance, foolish human hubris. And those movies are really tragic because we, we look at those movies and, and we, we see what could have been. We see how things could have been different. We see how there could have been joy that was blossoming in the hearts of these two individuals had they not been foolish. If they were only able to see clearly what was right there in front of them, and yet they never do. Now that's just Hollywood's version of, 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 of the sadness that I think that... that in a greater scale, heaven experiences almost all the time. Of God, through His Spirit, helping people in their heart and mind to understand that there is a judgment and there is righteousness and there is sin. And that through, through the, the, the Word and the, and the, the, the storytelling of, of the Gospels and the, the theology that Paul writes, that there is the opportunity for for us to find that tremendous happiness, that great joy, that, that, that peace that passes understanding in this life right now, regardless of what else is going on in the world, to have that as our own here, that confidence, that assurance, that strength, that significance, that direction, that, that, that power that is available to us. It goes, it goes untapped. It goes untouched and unexperienced. It's foolishness. It's foolishness. 
Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. And the challenge, if you've never, ever, ever allowed what it is that God is trying to do for you, has done through Christ, but is trying to make it real and effective for you. Your sins, your sins. Don't be afraid of that word. Your sins are keeping you away from the salvation of your soul. Your sins are keeping you from a relationship with God that transforms everything about you, turns you into a person of of self-control and of nobility and dignity and power and strength and wisdom, self-control of joy, of faithfulness, of gentleness, of kindness. The list of the attributes and the virtues that the Bible gives for the disciples of Jesus goes on and on and on and on. And it gives you a power to deal with adversity, but to not allow it to be effective, to allow it not to pass through your life without it stopping and embracing you and you embracing it is foolishness. Is foolishness. Be a fool no longer. I'm going to have some shepherds down here at the front right now during the singing of this next song. And the God of heaven has brought a cross into your life that can change it. That can change it forever. What are you going to do? Let's stand and sing together.